You're listening to a message from Grace Church of North Brunswick, where people are empowered, impacted, and enriched through the good news of the gospel. To learn more about Grace Church, visit our website at gracechurchnv.com. And now we hope that you enjoy this message. Um, I want to introduce his wife, Mi Young. She's the one he married up to. If she would just stand up and his children, Caleb and Andrew, just stand up. I know you just love that, Andrew, don't you? Love that attention. But um, all kidding aside, uh, my brother is the one that led me to Jesus. And uh, he is our guest speaker here today. He's a, just a powerful speaker. He has a master. He has every uh, bit of education that I don't. <laughs> so if I say it wrong, don't worry, you won't understand it either. But he does have a master's in applied physics. He's a PhD in theology. He's a doctor of theology. He teaches at seminaries. He's taught in the Philippines and in China. Um, he's just basically a rocket scientist that, got, that loves Jesus. And uh, we had such a great time at the men's breakfast yesterday as he spoke. I'm going to come down off the stage because he probably won't, so I want to just get you, you know, we're, we're, we're very different, you're going to find out. Um, but at the same time, we're a lot the same because we both love people and we love seeing people get saved and come to Jesus. I'm coming down here because I'm going to tell you something very personal and something that he, I know he doesn't like that I do. So, you know, like when you can get something on your big brother or sister and they can't stop you, you just do it, right? Amen? It's like, I got the mic. Sorry. Can't do nothing. Can't beat me up anymore. It's that big brother thing. They just always have it, but I have the microphone. Anyway, after my brother David led me to the Lord, you know, he mentored me and uh, helped me, and he was going to a church in Texas at the time in Dallas, and I'm going to tell you this. I'm, here's why I'm telling you this. Physicist, doctor of theology, that's all, like my brother said, it's just names. But what I'm about to tell you will explain to you who my brother really is. He was going to this church in Dallas, and there was a man in the church who had kidney failure, both of his kidneys, and he was going to die. And my brother didn't just sit there. He said, I'll give you my kidney. And I remember when he told me he was going to do that, I was angry because the brother that I had lost, I didn't want to lose again. But he, he was peaceful about it. He was peaceful about going under anesthesia and having a doctor open up his body and remove one of his organs to give to another man in the church who is still alive, who has struggled, but he wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for my brother. And he hates this. He hates it. I'm doing it anyway because I want to honor my brother because you know what? I don't know if I'm half a man that could do that. So I admire my brother for doing that. That tells you about someone. That, that speaks volumes about someone. That's one of the reasons I admire him so much. And uh, 
outside of the fact that he's mentored me over these years after beating me up when we were kids. So without further ado, <laughs> I'm going introduce to my, introduce my brother, Dr. David Dean, to you right now. He's bringing the word today. Before I get serious, I just want to say, Pastor Joe, stay healthy, because I'm not giving you the other kidney. <laughs> Good morning, folks. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about my life a little bit about how God has changed my attitude toward my life. My life started in New Brunswick. I was born in Middlesex Hospital. I think it was called St. Joseph's back then. I spent the first six, of my, first six years of my life in a little house at 1818 Oak Road, which is less than a half a mile from here. Now, that house has been torn down since and they built something to replace it. I went to kindergarten and first grade in that brick building across the street. Um, a lot of things happened in that little house back there. I think my parents moved in shortly before I was born. I have a big sister named Debbie. And I have a lot of happy memories of that house, but I also have some very sad and painful memories of that house. One of the happiest memories I have from that house, it's just this picture in my head. It's almost looked like my brain took a snapshot of my little brother. I try not to call him Joey in front of you. <laughs> By the way, you, you're not allowed to call him Joey. Only I can do that, okay? But I, I have this picture in my head of him with his fat little belly sitting in diapers <laughs> in front of me, and, and we're playing with a ball or something. You know, Joey was one of these babies that everybody looks at and says, he's so beautiful. I was kind of jealous, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> I don't think I was much to look at, certainly not much to look at now. But when Joey was born, Joe, sorry. When, when he was born, his birth certificate had the same name on it as mine. It had the name Dean on it. And I remember my grandmother telling me the story of my father taking Joe to show him to my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a war veteran. He lived in a retirement home in Keyport, and he had green hair, I kid you not. And he said it was because he worked in a brass factory all his life. But he was a sharp old guy. And he took one look at Joe and said, where the heck did he come from? <laughs> See, it was very obvious that Joe had a different father than I have. 
and I've tried to piece the story together. I've heard different versions of it from various different people. But my understanding is that my parents, who were very forward-thinking in the late 50s and early 60s, offered to a friend and Joe's father a place where they could sleep together because they couldn't afford a hotel room. Now, they weren't married. And somehow that led to my mother getting involved in an affair with his father. Now, not long after Joe was born, my parents' marriage fell apart. They divorced. My mother married Joe's father. Two years later, a daughter came along. Two years after that, a son came along. So now there are five of us all together. My older sister, me, and the three little kids, as we used to call them. By that point, Joe's father divorced. Well, he didn't really divorce my mother. He left my mother. And my mother was left as a single mom with five young kids. We ended up moving to New Brunswick. We lived in New Brunswick in one of the worst parts of town. We were probably the poorest family in the worst part of town. We lived on canned peanut butter from the Salvation Army and welfare. Um, we couldn't afford to buy clothes. The school nurse was very kind to us. She would call us up to the office pretending there was some medical thing. She would have gone to the Salvation Army and gotten a big box of clothes for us to try on. She'd let us find things that fit us. She'd then send us back to class with nothing. She put the clothes in a paper bag at the back door of the school so we could pick it up later so the other kids didn't know. That's how we got our clothes. Um, Joe and the two little kids lived with my mother five days a week. My older sister and I commuted back and forth. We lived with my father on the weekends and went to school and lived with my mother five days a week. And I spent really all of my life until 12th grade going back and forth that way. Um, it was a hard life. There were a lot of good things in it, too. But there was constant conflict. Um, my father was faithful to my mother in the sense that he gave her her child support every week. Um, but they would argue over how she was raising us. From time to time, Joe's father would show up and there'd be arguments between him and our mother. It was a messy life. Well, I needed something to hang on to in that stage of life. I was really a very bitter kid. It hurts to see two marriages fall apart. Every child wants parents who give him or her a sense of security. The feeling that you're in a safe place and they're going to take care of you no matter what. And we didn't have that. And I became bitter. And I picked up something from my father. Now, my father had grown up in a Christian church. 
He graduated from a Christian college, Hope Christian College in Michigan. He got a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. But he never believed the gospel. Never believed it. And in later years after I got saved and I shared the gospel with him, he would say, Dave, I know all that. I read the Bible. I studied Greek and Hebrew. I know what it says. I know the message. I just don't believe it. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe people are sinful. And to the best of my knowledge, my father's in hell today. I saw him briefly before my wife and I and our two boys went to the Philippines in 1994. And we talked to him about the gospel, and he said the same thing. I hope before he died, he came to faith in Christ. And if I get to heaven and he's there, I will shout so loud, you will all hear it. <laughs> but I have to tell you, he taught me to be an atheist. The Unitarian Church, he became a minister of a Unitarian Church. They teach everything but Christianity. They embrace Hinduism, Buddhism, they embrace Judaism, they embrace almost every religion. But in his church, one thing would not be tolerated. And that was the idea that there is only one way of salvation. And so that's what I grew up believing. I grew up as an atheist. Um, Pastor Joe will tell you that my hero when I was growing up was Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Um, hey, I see the sign over there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember very clearly, I remember very clearly sitting in my father's car one night. I don't remember exactly what was going on, but he had left my sister and me in the car, and he'd gone into the hospital for something. It might have been when my youngest brother, Stacy, was being born. I don't know, but he was gone for like four hours. And my sister, two years older than me, turned to me and said, where's dad? What's going to happen to us? And I remember saying to her, don't worry, I'll take care of you, but I am never going to let anybody hurt me for the rest of my life. And I did my best to shut down my emotions. And I would use my atheism as a weapon and as a barrier. Now, the reality was I was like every other person on the face of the earth. There is no such thing as an atheist. There are people who say they're atheists. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18, says that the truth is evident to everyone by the things that are created. All you have to do is open your eyes or even close your eyes, <laughs> and you can't deny that there is a world that you didn't create, and it had to come from something or someone greater than you. Now, when I was about 15 years old, I went with my stepmother. By the way, I have two stepmothers. In fact, I have three Jewish mothers. Do you know that? I have three Jewish mothers. 
All three of my father's wives were Jewish. My, my second stepmother um, liked canoeing. And we went to practice whitewater canoeing on the Delaware River at a time when the river was really high. And she and I were both very good canoeists. We got through the rapids no problem. There was a man there who wanted to go down the rapids, but he didn't have anybody to go with, so he asked my stepmother if she would go down the rapids with him. Well, he was a klutz. So halfway through the rapids, he capsized the boat. The boat goes over. They go around a corner of the river, and I was afraid they were drowning. And I, the atheist, found myself saying inside of my head, please, God, don't let her drown. <laughs> I never told anybody about that until after I got saved. If you've read my brother's book, you know a little bit about our mother. Our mother's still alive. She's a very sick, twisted person. I won't tell you the things she did. I'll simply say that she abused her children horribly in unspeakable ways. When I was 16, I was still living with my mother and the three little kids. I got into an argument with her about the way she was trying to manipulate your pastor. I told her, this is wrong. You are turning him into a jellyfish. Let him be his own man. And she got furious. She told me, to go pack my bags and leave the house for good. And I turned my back away from her, and she tried to kill me with a kitchen knife. Now, she wasn't successful. <laughs> Praise God. She, she wasn't successful. Um, but that incident led me to tell my father about what she had done. And when I told my father about what she had tried to do to me, my big sister, who had been keeping the secret for years about what had been done to her, told that to my father. And we realized that things were going on that none of us had known about and that it was not a situation that could go on. So my sister and I agreed to testify against my mother in family court in October of 1973. And as a matter of fact, my sister and Joe testified before the judge. I didn't get to give my testimony that day. That evening, when the hearing came to the conclusion for the day, there was more to go on the next day because I had to tell my part. My sister and I said to the judge, we begged him, do not let our mother go home. 
the judge didn't listen. See, my mother had said many, many times, if anybody tries to take these kids away from me, I will take them and I will end my life and theirs. And if you've read Pastor Joe's book, you know that my mother was frequently suicidal. You know that we fought with her to stop her from killing herself on many occasions. Well, the next day we went to the courtroom and waited and waited, and she didn't show up. And to cut to the chase, I never saw my two brothers, my sister, or my mother until 12 years later. All those 12 years, my sister and I lived with the question, where were they, even did they still exist? Were they still alive? It was a painful time. Now, I had always been interested in science. You know, Mr. Spock was my hero. Um, I went away to college. As Joe has told you, I'm the academic type. When I was going up, growing up, school was my refuge from my family. I went away to Drew University here in New Jersey. I majored in physics. And I was about two years into my college studies when we began studying thermodynamics. And I won't go into the details, but the laws of thermodynamics say that everything runs down. Rechargeable batteries lose their charge. New things get old. Polished things get rusty. Hairy heads get bald. <laughs> I used to have lots more hair than him. <laughs> and, and, and as I learned those facts, and I knew they were true, I began to realize that this theory of evolution, which so entrances our world, which is the strongest tool to argue against the existence of a creator God, I began to realize that it didn't work. It was bad science. Now, it was like God pulling one of the legs out from under my table of non-belief. And it wasn't until years later that I came to faith, but this was part of what God was using. God was using the pain of losing my family, he was using science. He was using a number of things to prepare me for what was coming. Now, I graduated from college. When I was in college, I had been on the fencing team, sword fighting. I was the MVP of my team my senior year. My senior year was the year they passed, is it Title IX? Isn't Title IX the one that says you have to have a women's team if there's no men's team? That's Title IX, right? Well, my senior year, that law was passed, and we didn't have a women's fencing team. 
So the school required us to have women on the men's fencing team. And it was chaos. <laughs> so at, at the end of that first year of women on the men's fencing team, the coach came to me and said, that is never going to happen again. <laughs> said, next year, we're going to have a women's fencing team. Now, he knew that I was about to start working full time at Bell Laboratories, which was only a 20-minute ride away from where I was going to school. So he said, would you like to be the first coach of the women's fencing team? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> well, that's where I met Mion. She came out for the team because her roommate was interested in a guy, and we had joint practices with the men's team twice a week. <laughs> that, that's where we met. Now, a year after we met, she went away to a Korean Bible camp and got saved. And in the years to come, I, I was around for another year. Then I went off to Cornell to work on a PhD in physics, which I never, which I never actually finished. And our relationship grew. As our relationship grew and we got closer together, her relationship with the Lord grew, and she began to realize that it was wrong for her to be dating a non-Christian. Now, let me just say, and my wife will hit me if I don't say this, and, and that's good. Ladies, do not date non-Christians. All right? The, the story turned out okay in our case, but it's not the right thing to do. Well, as this conflict between us grew, I decided I was going to solve the problem. So I took the Bible that she had given me, and I got some books from my father which he said would explain why the Bible wasn't true and why Christianity was a foolish superstition. And I very seriously studied these things for about three months in the fall of 1982. And at the end of that time, I mailed the books back to my father with a note, and I basically said, sorry, Dad, but these things don't impress me. They're illogical. They misrepresent what I read in the Bible, and I'm not impressed. I wrote to me young, and I said, I still don't believe in God, but whoever wrote this book understands human nature. And she wrote back, sent me a box full of chick tracts. Some of you know what those are? And she said, that's not good enough. And I wrote back to her and it said, fine, it's over. So we broke up. And, and that spring, I wrote her off. We had no contact. I started pursuing other women. Nothing went anywhere. And on April 30th, 1983, when I was home visiting my family, she called my family and invited me and my sister to Christian Day at Six Flags. All right? By the way, how much time do I have, Joe? Okay. All right. 
so, 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 we, so we went to Six Flags. Now, I like adventure, okay? In my life, I've been spelunking, I've been technical rock climbing, I've been mountain climbing, I have a pilot's license. You know, I like doing exciting things, but I hate roller coasters. <laughs> you know why I hate them? No brakes and no steering wheel. <laughs> you're just strapped to this thing and you're helpless, no control. Well, Myung likes roller coasters. So she and my little sister get on the roller coaster. They're in the seat behind me. I'm in the front seat of the front car with some girl I never met. And we're going up to the top. You know how it is? And just as we go over the top, she turns to me and says, are you a Christian? And I said, no. And she says, well, I hope you make the right decision. And then, boom! Down we go. And I'm there white knuckles the whole time. Well, I didn't die on the roller coaster. That night, they had an open air concert, several different rock groups, Christian rock groups playing. And every one of the bands would share the gospel. They'd make an exhortation to the crowd. There are no seats. It's just a big field. We're all standing in the field listening to the music. And this blonde-haired lady, big bubble hairdo, you know, all painted up, she's moving through the crowd, talking to people. I don't know what she's doing. She comes over to me, young and me, and she grabs us and a bunch of other young people, pulls us into a crowd, into a huddle, and she starts praying against the demons of drugs and, you know, satanic rock and roll and all these things. And when she's done, she looks up and she turns to me and stares me straight in the eyes and says, you don't know Jesus, do you? She says, I was a drug addict, I was a prostitute, I was an alcoholic, Jesus delivered me from all of it. And whatever your problem is, he can deliver it from you. Now, pray after me, just, just like that. It would be Pastor Alicia. <laughs> right. 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 Well, she scared me to death. And so she said, pray after me. So I prayed after her. You know, and the prayer was, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short of the glory of God. I know I deserve eternal condemnation. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross and that he was buried and that he rose from the dead three days later. And I'm asking you, Father, to forgive my sins because I trust what Jesus did. She led me through the prayer, she said amen, she gave me a hug, and she's gone. <laughs> now I have to tell you the honest truth, I don't know if I was saved at that moment. 
But later that night, I drove me young home, dropped her off. I drove five and a half hours back to Ithaca, where Cornell is. I got into bed. It must have been 5 a.m. in the morning. I woke up a couple hours later, but before I went to bed, I said, God, I don't know how to pray. I don't know if anything happened tonight. But I know if you're real, I know I'm in trouble, and I need forgiveness. But you have got to let me know whether you're real. I put my head on the pillow, and I woke up a few hours later, and I knew he was real. Now, <clears throat> what happened to me is that God had used a long sequence of events. He had used the pain of two broken marriages. He had used this terrible thing of losing my family. And by the way, we still didn't know where they were. He had used my own sinful life. He had used a stranger to help bring the gospel to me. He had used me young to help bring the gospel to me. He had led me into his word. He'd brought me through quite a while of studying science. All the evidence was before me. See, nobody doesn't believe the gospel for a lack of evidence. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The evidence is all around us. People don't believe the gospel because their hearts are hard, because they know that if they submit to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he has a right to tell them how to live. And we are all born, it's like we've got black glasses on our eyes, and we don't want to take them off. But when the Holy Spirit moves, he takes that veil away. And you see two things. You see two things. You look down, and what you see is ugly. You see yourself. And you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and what you see is beautiful. You see someone who made the greatest sacrifice possible for you, and you realize he's your only hope. You know, when, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was in terrible physical pain. He was enduring scorn and spitting and ridicule. He was enduring the crowd that stood before him that was cheering the fact that he was being crucified. But all of that was nothing compared to the worst thing that he was suffering. The Bible says that our sins were laid upon him. And as Jesus hung on that cross, the Father, functioning as judge, looked down upon his Son, taking the role of sacrifice, and all of the wrath that every one of us deserves for all of the sins that we have committed all of our lives and all the sins of all other people who have been committed 
that have been committed in all of other history and will be committed in future history until we get to the eternal state. All of that wrath was directed at him. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he said that, he was saying, Father, I am experiencing the worst possible thing. I am out of fellowship with you. I am in the most lonely, worst place to be. I am the object of your wrath. And he gave up for a few hours something that he had enjoyed for all of eternity past, the joy of the fellowship within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in each other. And he absorbed what we deserve to get. It's amazing when you think about it. And he didn't do it while we were saying, please save us. He did it while man was saying, we want nothing to do with him. Now, again, if you've read Joe's book, you know that a few years later, we were reunited. That had to be the happiest day of my life. can't tell you what it was like, but it literally was like discovering somebody you thought was dead was still alive. And I will tell you without a shadow of a doubt that whatever pain God brings into your life to bring you to the point where you realize you need eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's worth it. Amen. It's worth it. And you know, he's going to bring pain into our lives after we get saved too. You know Romans 8.28? Many of you have memorized this verse. I want to read it and the verse that follows because we often fail to connect them. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, the good that all things work together for is only one particular good. If you got a beautiful girlfriend and she breaks up with you, that doesn't mean that God's going to bring a more beautiful girl. <laughs> if you got a great job and you lose it, it doesn't mean you're going to be making two more zeros next year. This is what it's for. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And do you catch that? Joey and I don't have the same father, but now we do. We all have the same father. And our Father is working to make us like his Son. Now, you ladies won't stop being ladies. You New Jerseyites won't stop being New Jerseyites. It doesn't mean the erasing of our personalities. It doesn't mean the destruction of our memories. 
but it does mean that our character is being changed. There's a process going on. Now, if you are born again, you don't need to worry that you're going to lose your salvation. My favorite gospel verse in the Bible is John 5, 24, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, if that was true yesterday, it's going to be true tomorrow. Amen. Right? Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. There is no losing your salvation. But that's not the end of the story. Do you ever wonder why when you get saved, God doesn't just shoot you up to heaven right away? <laughs> what do you have to stay here for? What's that about? What's that about? God has work for us to do. He has work for us to do. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. This is one of my favorite passages in all scripture. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Now, the switch between the all men and the us is very important. The gospel is a gospel for whomever will respond. But here, Paul is talking to us who have already responded. He says, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Okay? This is why you are still on earth after being saved. See, we got work to do. We got work to do. Now, You've heard that I'm a seminary professor, right? I, I, I teach in a theological seminary in Hong Kong. And one of the things that I try to impress very strongly on my students is that we right now are living in a very weird state. There's something very weird about what we are right now. And I'm talking to those of you who are born again. If you're not born again, what I'm saying now doesn't apply to you. Before you were saved, over here, between the moment you're conceived in your mother's womb until the day when you're born again, you are, in the terms of scripture, dead. Now, you're very much alive biologically. You got a mind, you got a spirit, you got a heart, but you are out of relationship with God. You are an object of God's wrath, and if you die before that day when you get born again, you go to hell. Now, I have no problem talking about hell. There is no good news without the bad news. And when you share the gospel, do not just say to people, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? That's not the whole gospel. 
we need to tell people that they were created in the image of God, and because they have the image of God, they have the capability of doing what no other creature on earth can do, and that is bringing honor to God by their behavior. Do you ever wonder why God hates sin? God doesn't just hate sin because it's disobedience. God hates sin because when we sin, we harm his reputation. Right? Human beings were made to be visible advertisements of the nature of God. Now, between the moment of conception in your mother's womb till the day when you are born again, you are unable to glorify God. You are an unredeemed person in what the Bible calls sinful mortal flesh. Now, one day after we die, we will be resurrected. When we get resurrected, we will be spiritually alive people in eternal resurrection bodies with no sin nature. Okay? Over here, we're completely against God. Over here, we will be completely for God. And where do you live? And I live. We live right here. You know what we are right now? We are spiritually alive, born-again people, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, still stuck in this thing. Now, I don't want you to think that your body is an evil thing. It's not an evil thing, but there's something associated with us. It's part of us. Don't say it's not part of you. It's part of you. It's part of me. The Bible calls it the flesh. Some Bibles translate it the sinful nature. And because of that, we are in a struggle. Now, you and I can live like unbelievers. We can do it. We often do. Doesn't please God. But we have the power, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, because we have the guidance of the Word, because we have the privilege of prayer, because we have the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, because we have the body of Christ to help us, we have the power to live in a way that will bring glory to God. Okay? Now, let me read something to you from Ephesians. First time I really understood this, this just knocked me off the table. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul is talking about the church. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and make all see. Now, my Bible says make all people see, but the word people is in italics, and I've got it crossed out because it's not there in the Greek. It simply says make all see what is the administration of the mystery. In other words, how God brought the church into existence, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the punchline. Why did God create the church? To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. All right, now, you probably know that in Ephesians chapter 6, there's discussion of spiritual warfare. Who is our spiritual warfare against? the principalities and powers. Now, you know what this verse is saying? 
this verse is saying that the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about us as people, the church of Jesus Christ exists to put on a show, but it's not a fake show. And guess who the audience is? The audience is the fallen angels. Now, there might be one sitting on that projector right there. There might be one in your living room when you go home this afternoon. Wherever we go, there may be some watching us. Now, when we live in a godly way, they look at us with discouragement. When Christians live in a godly way, what does that do? That reminds Satan and the demons that they are doomed because if God can do to a person like me what he has done, by the way, he's not finished yet, um, if he can do that, then he can complete his plan, which brings the doom of Satan and his angels. Amen. Now, the flip side of that is this. When we're walking in sin, whether it's personal private sin, or whether it's sin against each other, the demons and Satan sit up there and they chuckle. And they say, ha, if that's the best that God can do, we're not worried. Now, this is where we live. We live in the time when we're capable of pleasing God and also capable of living in a way that doesn't please God. And you know what? In your entire sequence of existence, over here when you weren't saved, over here after you die, the only time within that sequence when you can build reward in heaven is right here. Now, guess what? That makes sense. Because this is the only time where your effort can change anything. When you are over here, you won't be able to sin. When you're over here, you can't glorify God. It's here, the messy place where we live right now. The messy place where we're struggling against sin, where temptation is bombarding us, where there's something in us that wants things that we know that displease God. This is the only place where you can earn reward. Now, when I got saved, I was three-quarters of the way through my Ph.D. in physics at Cornell. I had done all my coursework. I had passed the comprehensive exams. I was in the middle of a research project. All I had to do was finish the research project, write my dissertation, and I would be Ph.D. physicist. Now, I didn't finish. Let me tell you why I didn't finish. I didn't finish because I had watched the PhD professor for whom I worked wreck his family. I watched as the money that he was making working in the oil business went to his head. I watched as he started cheating on his wife. And remember, I come from the most broken family that you can imagine. Yesterday, somebody asked me, how many brothers and sisters do you have? And I couldn't answer the question. Because it depends on which marriages you say count, right? My father had three wives. My mother had two husbands. My second stepmother had three husbands. My 
third stepmother had at least two. I'm not even sure. And then there are other connections. Do you count all these kids as your siblings? I don't even know. The first decision that the Lord led me to make after I got saved was, if I am ever going to do anything that is going to bring him glory, if he gives me a family, it's going to be being a faithful husband who won't leave his wife and a faithful father who won't do to his kids what my parents did to us. I would rather finish my life and have it be written on my tombstone, faithful father and husband, than have it be written on my tombstone, you know, the head of Apple or something. And I will, I said this in the first service, I often say this, if it comes down to my family or the ministry, I'll quit the ministry to save my family. Before I was saved, when I had such a negative attitude towards life, my motto was, life sucks and then you die. That's how I felt. I really did. Um, if you knew me back then, you would have said, this guy is a real downer. Um, I'm not the life of the party, you know. My brother Joe is. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty quiet guy. But you know what? I, I am extraordinarily content with my life. Um, by, by the grace of God, I have a wonderful wife. I have two fine sons. I have a daughter now that my younger son got married. Um, this is Juliana. Stand up. Um, I have this fantastic role in life where I get to share the scriptures with people. Um, it couldn't be better. Now, my, my closing exhortation to you is simply this. You're just like me. You don't know how much time you got left. You have already crossed this line. You don't know where this line is. Now, my favorite professor and mentor, a guy named J. Dwight Pentecost, taught full-time until he was 99 and then died. He's a man I admire hugely, and I would like to follow in his footsteps. If the Lord allows me to live until I'm 99 and teach that whole time, I'll be thrilled. But if I get run over by a truck this afternoon, I think there will be a sense of satisfaction when I look back over my life. Now, my wife and I don't have a lot of money. We don't have much of a retirement portfolio or anything like that. I don't know what we're going to do if we ever retire. I don't want to retire. Um, 
but you can't take those things with you. It's like Pastor Joe was saying, there's no, you never see a hearse towing a U-Haul trailer. Ask yourself, am I now serving God? Now, I'm not talking about going into full-time ministry. I'm not talking about throwing away everything and becoming a missionary. I'm not saying that's what you need to do. If you are a father, are you being a godly father who leads his wife and his children? If you are a mother, are you being a godly mother who trains her children to follow the Lord and submits to her husband and together you worship as a family? If you fix cars, are you doing it to the glory of God? Are you being an honest person? If you work on Wall Street, where are your values? Are you chasing after the money that everybody else is chasing after because you think it's going to make you happy? It's not. You know, when Paul wrote to various churches and he wrote to slaves, he didn't say you have to stop being a slave. He said you can glorify God right where you are. Some of you might be taking care of a sick elderly relative or a child with serious developmental problems. Maybe you spend your days changing diapers on an adult and you think it doesn't count. It does. Amen. If you do it for the glory of God, it counts. Amen. Right? Remember the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what that's really about? The primary way you serve God is by serving people. And if your life makes this world a better place, your reward is growing in heaven. Amen. Right? This is what we are here for. Now, we can think about the end times and try to guess who's going to win the election and what's coming in the future and all those things. You know what? If we knew who the Antichrist was, we couldn't stop him. Our job is to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and make the world a better place where we are. And whether it's impressive and public or whether it's private and humble and only God sees it, that treasure is racking up in heaven. Amen. And you're bringing glory to God and you're making God look good before the demon on that projector. <laughs> now, If you are not born again, if you have not received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, I got news for you, and it's not good news. If you die, you're going to hell. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 John says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. He, you can't have the Father and not have the Son. There is no such thing as a person who is saved who has not put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying this because I think I'm better than any of you. You notice in my testimony, I haven't told you about the bad things I did. 
I'm mostly focused about the bad things that other people did to me. But the fact of the matter is, there's plenty of bad in my past. But it doesn't matter whether there's a lot of bad in your past or a little bad in your past. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he is ready to forgive any of us who come to him through his son. And don't tell yourself that your sins are so great that God could never forgive them. They aren't. There is no sin so great, no guilt so dark, that the blood of Jesus Christ won't cover it. Now, I'm almost done. If you're saved, you have received two incredible gifts. The first one is simply life. The second one is eternal life. Those are gifts. They are a stewardship. Don't waste your life. A life is a terrible thing to waste. And if you're unsaved, you've received one life only, mortal life. And if that's the only life you ever receive before you die, you will go to hell. Don't let that happen. There is nothing stopping you from receiving the gift of eternal life today. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And that means he's ready for fellowship. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. That means if you don't believe, you will perish. And if you do believe, you won't perish. And I beg you, don't walk away from here with the knowledge that if you die today, you'll perish. Will you pray with me? Father, I don't know whether everything I've said today held together in a logical train or not, but I've allowed your spirit to lead me. And as I said earlier this morning, it just stuns me that I'm standing here in a church halfway between my elementary school and the house where I grew up, a house where no doubt I blasphemed your name, and you had mercy on me, you saved me, and then you took me, an atheist and a blasphemer, and once, one who once persecuted followers of Jesus Christ, and you turned me around. I once spouted lies. Now I have the privilege of proclaiming the truth. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the pain that you had to pile on me so that I could open my eyes. Father, I pray for any in this room who don't know you, that you would call them today out of the darkness into the light and that they could have the joy of peace with you, that they could know that death is no longer something to fear, that they could begin to put treasure in that eternal retirement account, 
And Father, for those of us in this room who have been saved for a while, help us to say afresh, I'm here to serve the living God. Help us to take seriously the fact that the time is short, that the rapture could happen today or our death could come today, and then there would be no more time. Help us not to waste our lives, Father. Help us to invest them in the only investment that pays off forever and has no downside. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.